it really was magic. When you actually discovered how they did it and learned, it almost seemed more magical in a, in a way. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Ron Clements' animation career began while he was still in high school and working part-time at the local television station in Sioux City, Iowa. An ill-fated trip to New York changed his life forever, leading a young Ron to Los Angeles and a job at Hanna-Barbera, before eventually landing his dream job, Disney. In this conversation, Ron talks about his early passion for drawing and experimentation with film, the highs and lows of his career, from being at the forefront of the Disney Renaissance with the release of The Little Mermaid to the disappointment of Treasure Planet. He also touches on the shift from 2D to CG animation. Here's our conversation with Ron Clements. And I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about, you know, growing up. So you're originally from Iowa. I am Sioux City, Iowa. Did you always want to draw? From about the time I was three years old, I, I drew. I think uh, I think somebody got me a blackboard. I got a blackboard for Christmas. Probably my mom got it for me, and I was drawing. And I know I I was drawing farm animals because they were on the blackboard. And I remember I I vaguely remember that I drew a cow that I was pretty proud of, and another kid that was my friend erased it, and and I was kind of upset about that. But I like to draw, and I drew. Uh, cartoon characters a lot and in those days the cartoon characters that I drew the most were Woody Woodpecker people remember Woody Woodpecker and uh, Mighty Mouse not Mickey Mouse I drew, I drew Mighty Mouse but yeah so I, I I think like when I was in kindergarten whatever the teacher commented that my drawings seemed like for a kid that they they weren't bad that they, that there was some potential there or some talent there was anybody else in the family creative? I'm an only child, and as a kid, I didn't know my father uh, really. But um, on my mother's side, I had a cousin who uh, who was a really good artist and became a professional illustrator. And I, I used to love to watch her draw. I would bug her all the time and irritate her to ask her just to draw for me because I was just... I liked to draw, but I was also fascinated to watch someone else draw. And she was really good. She still is. She's a, uh, she's retired, but she's a great painter and, and really talented. But that's the only one that I know of. Uh, I'm an only child, but my mother came from a family of, of 13. Um, so I have a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins and things like that. So did your mom kind of, did she support your art? Yeah, I think so. So we... we didn't have much money, but um, but I always had money for paper. I would buy typewriter paper. I, I would buy uh, bunches and bunches of typewriter paper. That's what I drew on. But I talked about in the master class, I think, that the big event for me, because I love cartoons, and a lot of kids like cartoons. That's not unusual. But uh, when I was nine years old and, and I saw the movie uh, Pinocchio, the Disney movie Pinocchio, in the Orpheum Theater in Sioux City, Iowa, and I was nine years old, um, that had, I would say, kind of a profound effect on me more than anything 
ever before that. I had seen Disney movies before. I, I had seen, I think, Cinderella when I was three and uh, Sleeping Beauty and 101 Dalmatians. But when I saw Pinocchio, I was just sort of blown away and and I became obsessed with that movie. And I, I did many, many drawings of the Pinocchio characters. I drew them and drew them and drew them. I went back to see the movie again. I even went back to the theater just to stare at the lobby cards because I was, I was fascinated um, by the whole thing. And it was actually for me, when I was nine years old, that's when I decided I th this is what I want to do, and and that became my goal for years. Of that, that I wanted to um, to go to California, and work for Walt Disney, and and become an animator. You know, you have that plan at nine years old. How do you actually go about achieving it? First thing I did was was to try to find out everything I could about animation and and how it was done and. And I went to the library, the Sioux City Public Library, and I, I looked and looked for stuff. And there wasn't much at all in those days. I found one book that had some information about that. But then, then one day I found an incredible book. It was, uh, it was called uh, The Art of Animation by Bob Thomas. And it was a book, um, I think came out in the 50s, that um, was just all about Disney animation kind of behind the scenes. And it, it focused on Sleeping Beauty and how that movie was made and all the different people that were involved and what the different jobs were. A lot of pictures, and but it had other, it talked about the other movies as well, uh, including Pinocchio. And it, and it had a lot of the people who worked on those movies, they they talked to and, 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 and they talked about their jobs and um, that book was like the Bible for me for, for a long time, and I, I checked it out of the library over and over again. Um, I checked it out many, many times, although when I looked at the, the little card, it seemed like that I was the only one that was checking that book out. So I don't, I don't quite understand, but somehow, somehow um, I was in my own little little groove there. And it's true that growing up, I didn't really know anybody else. I had I didn't know anybody else that sort of had the same ambition. But then uh, I think in, in eighth grade, I had a paper route and I used the money from my paper route to buy a Super 8 camera, a film camera, that, that actually, a Yashica camera that actually had uh, still frame capacity, which meant you could shoot one frame at a time, and and so with that camera, I could I could shoot animation, and I made little Super 8 films, little Super 8 animated films with cells that I made up, cutting sheets of acetate, and uh, and in color, I painted the cells, and I wow. I made little color animated films. Um, and then when I was 15 years old, just before my sophomore year in high school, I actually got a job at a local TV station as a graphic artist, a part-time job. And, and that was a really interesting job. It didn't pay very much at all, but I got to do all kinds of different things. I got to do um, like the station promos and a lot of little advertising cartoons and things for that. And I even got to do courtroom illustration for one, one big trial. And um, and one day I, I brought the, to the TV station my Super 8 films, and I, I showed them my Super 8 films, and, and they were impressed, and we thought we could actually do some local commercials. Um, and we did. We did some, some uh, commercials. We, they built a little animation stand for me with a 16-millimeter camera now, and, um, and we did some commercials, um, and that led to... Um, 
Actually, at one point then I asked them if I could just make my own film with the equipment in my spare time. And they said, yeah, yeah, that would be fine. So I made a, I actually made a 15 minute animated film about Sherlock Holmes because I, I, at that time I was really, really into Sherlock Holmes and I uh, had read all the books and I, I wrote my own little story about Sherlock Holmes and, and, and Watson and Professor Moriarty that involved vampires and Frankenstein as well. Uh, uh, dark, uh, but uh, but anyway. So and that got some attention in Iowa. And I had a lot. Of, it took me about six months to make that film. And I did the voices. I painted the backgrounds. Wow. I sort of put the soundtrack together using. Um, they had a library of sound effects and and little music cues that you you could do. Although at the same time, now I was I was a senior in high school, and uh, when I met with my my guidance counselor, you know, like, what do you want to do? What What's your goal? What's your career goal? Um, I told him, you know, I want to work at Disney. I want to become a Disney animator. And at that time, um, I, I could have said, you know, I want to be a professional juggler or, or a trapeze artist or anything. I mean, it just, it just didn't compute. And it was like, um, and so I, 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 didn't quite know. I was a little confused at that time what the next step might be. He wanted me to go to, uh, I, it was a Catholic high school, to a little Catholic college in Davenport, Iowa. I had a, I had a partial scholarship, um, and then I backed out. I didn't go because I thought this, I don't, I just don't think this is going to help me. And I was looking, looking, trying to find uh, like a school that had some kind of animation program, but there really wasn't much then. Some schools had animation programs, but they were more experimental, like um, film. I mean, they were interesting artistic films, but not something that would actually help you get a job in the industry. But there was one school that I found that actually did have a program that was like a training program, and that was uh, the School of Visual Arts in New York. So I, at 18, I actually... Uh, and I had hardly ever been anywhere in my whole life. I flew to New York by myself, visited the School of Visual Arts, and it was kind of cool. And I liked New York, but then I backed out because New York frightened me. I just, I just didn't feel like I could handle it yeah. at that time. And, and I didn't know what I was going to do for a little bit and sort of worked out there. One day there was a, an executive uh, from the San, San Fernando Valley, a news executive um, from L.A. who was visiting the TV station. And they showed him my film. They showed him my Sherlock Holmes film. And he liked it. And he happened to know some people at Hanna-Barbera Studios uh, who did like um, – the Flintstones and Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, the Jetsons, films like that. And so the TV station flew me out to um, to California. I interviewed there. I showed them my film and showed them my drawings. And they hired me as an in-betweener, which is sort of the bottom rung of the animation ladder, the in-betweener at that time. And this, of course, was all hand-drawn animation. The in-betweener draws the drawings in between the animator's drawings to smooth it all out. But I really wanted to work at Disney uh, while I was working at Hanna-Barbera. And I was taking classes in the evening, life drawing classes, because I knew life drawing was important to get into Disney. But I just kept calling the personnel department, and they told me they weren't hiring anybody. They just they had just finished the Disney animated film Robin Hood. Mm. Uh, this was 1973, and they had just laid off people. Um, so I was discouraged. 
until I actually found out from a magazine article I stumbled on that they had an animation training program. And they were actually looking, recruiting young people about my age to work in animation. Somehow they didn't tell the personnel department about it. Um, um, but I, but there it was, and, and they had the person to contact who's, weirdly his name was, was Don Duckwald. Donald Duckwald was the executive in charge of the program. And I called him up. And I told him who I was and um, my background, and I told him I was taking classes at Art Center, which, which was good because they actually had found some people that they were really happy with from Art Center. So I said, "Come, come on down," and I did, and I met with Eric Larson, who was one of the venerable Disney uh, legends, one of the nine old men of the Disney animators, who was actually in charge of the program. And, and the review board of the older animators, they, they looked at my life drawings and they looked at my film and I got hired at Disney. This was in January of 1974. It was very scary because the way it worked then is they hired you for four weeks, just for four weeks. And you had four weeks to do a personal test working with Eric Larson and you could animate anything you wanted. And at the end of those four weeks, the review board of the older animators would look at your personal test and if they decided you had potential, you'd go another four weeks. If they didn't like it, you, it was over. It, it could have been over right yeah. then, right then. And actually, it came close. Uh, I just barely got by that first four weeks because I was so nervous. I was just petrified. And the people I, I ran into were real. There were some really talented people. I don't think I had ever, I mean, this was very new for me to, um, um, but I did make it. There was just one thing I did, one thing I did that, they, that I had a little something, that had a little spark to it. So they decided to give me another four weeks. In the second four weeks, I was much more relaxed, and I, I did a Winnie the Pooh, uh, a character of the rabbit from Winnie the Pooh, and they liked that test, and so I made it. And so that's how I got into Disney. It almost didn't happen. Yeah, it's scary. But thankfully, thankfully I made it. And then I, I worked I worked at Disney now. Well, I retired. I'm retired now. But I, wor I worked there for 45 years. That TV station gig really opened doors for you. And it couldn't, it might not never have happened if you it hadn't easily, had the fortitude for it. It easily could not have happened. Uh, just the circumstances. Uh, I would never have gotten that job even then if it hadn't been that they were looking for somebody and someone had had a, a young guy there had left and uh, and I had sent some drawings into the station just for fun uh, some caricatures of the local uh, news newscast that they showed on the air which I thought was fun and I just happened to send those drawings in at, at a time when they were looking for someone in the art department and even the at Disney I was very lucky because if people don't know, um, the doors were closed at Disney for years. And, uh, and after Walt Disney died in 1966, <clears throat> they were actually thinking they might just phase out animation because all the artists, most of the artists at least, were now in their 60s or getting close to that and approaching retirement. And, and they might very well have phased out animation if not for uh, the success of The Jungle Book which was the last film uh, that Disney was involved with before he passed. And surprisingly or not, Jungle Book was a big hit, uh, bigger than any they had had for a while, not just in uh, the United States uh, and Canada and Europe, all, all over Europe. It, it, and, and it was because of the Jungle Book, the success of the Jungle Book, that they thought um, 
maybe we should keep this going. But if we're going to keep it going, we're going to need to recruit and find some young people. And they went to art schools and they went to the people and they and they found some some really talented people. Uh, like they were like in their twenties. I was sort of in the middle of that, um, and uh, so so the doors were open. If only they had told the personnel department. I mean, why didn't they tell the personnel department? But but at least the doors were open, and I got in. And a couple of years after that, they, they actually started a, um, a character animation program at Cal Arts, which is a Disney-owned university. And then uh, a lot of the people after that came from Cal Arts. I might have gone to Cal Arts if they had had the program, yeah. but I got there two years before the program. But John Musker, who I've worked with um, for my entire well, my entire writing and directing career. I was an animator and then a storyboard artist and then became a writer and director with John Musker. He was in that very first class at CalArts, along with people like Brad Bird and John Lasseter and, and Jerry Reese, some really, really uh, great people. And Tim Burton uh, and Chris Buck were in the class right under them, the second, the second class. So. Um, and from that point, a lot of uh, the majority, I would say, of, of the new talent that came to Disney came from CalArts because mm-hmm. uh, they had a program that covered a lot of different bases. So the program that you came into Disney with, was that sort of a short-term program that kind of existed before the whole CalArts thing kind of took off? Yeah, it started in the, in the early 70s, though, though because they really wanted to train people you also got a lot of training. I mean, once I made it, once I was hired permanently, then you, I became an in-betweener at Disney. That's how that worked. But but the quality of the, the animation was, was somewhat higher uh, than the quality at Hanna-Barbera because they were making feature films. And, and, um, and I got to work with some really talented animators. Uh, the first uh, thing I worked on was a feature at Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. Um, I did in between and assistant work on that, and then I went on to the Rescuers. That was the first feature film I worked on. Two Little Mice, Madame Medusa. While I that was happening, you, you were sort of on your own. Um, you were encouraged to continue to do personal tests. We also had cla- evening classes and life drawing classes and sculpting classes, and and sh- we were shown films all the time and lectures. It was like going to school and working at the same time, but I did another personal test. I, I did a third personal test, and this one I spent more time on, more than four weeks. This one, I think, went maybe, I could have spent six months on it. It was a one-minute test, and the character I animated was Cruella de Vil, from 101 Dalmatians. I really sort of was fascinated with that character and I liked the design and had a little had some stuff with her and Horace, the sort of badden that was in the film. And uh, and working with Eric, I did that test and uh, and they really liked that test a lot. That test went over big. And after that Frank Thomas, who was uh, another one of the nine old men, great great animator, um, he animated in Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, uh, the first feature film, he animated the scene at the end of the movie when um, Snow White is in a glass coffin and the dwarfs are all around and, and, and sort of mourning her death and they're sort of in tears. And that was really the first time that um, 
audiences actually shed tears in an animated film. Before that, I think people thought animated films can make you laugh. Everybody knows they can be funny, but I don't think anyone knew they could be emotionally moving like that film was, and Grumpy in particular, because he had, he had sort of been really, he didn't like her to begin with, and, and then he came to really sort of care about her. He had a real arc in the movie, which was a pretty big deal. Anyway, Frank did that. He did some really key animation of Pinocchio and Bambi, and, and he, um, he was the animator of Captain Hook. And he, he animated the spaghetti sequence in Lady and the Tramp with, um, with Lady and the Tramp in the Italian restaurant. So he was, um, and, and he asked me to work with him and he was my mentor for two years. For two years, I worked under Frank on The Rescuers, uh, learning animation, and then, uh, and then becoming an animator. And, and toward the end of the movie, I, I was promoted to animator, and I think I was 23 at that point. So uh, somehow, from nine years old, when I said, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to do, at 23, I, I had actually achieved that goal. <laughs> So it was, now what? <laughs> I don't know. Did you ever kind of like have a pinch me moment? I can't believe I'm here and this is happening. I had many, many p- pinch me moments. Um, and like you say, I, I, like I, a lot of things, I was very, very fortunate, uh, very lucky. I happened to be at the right place at the right time. And um, of course, I never knew Walt Disney. Um, I idolized Walt Disney, but I got to actually work with people who did know him very well and worked with him very closely. And 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 I got to learn um, the Disney approach to animation, um, uh, which was kind of a very unique approach. Uh, even, I mean, there was other great animation, the Warner Brothers films with Bugs Bunny and and Porky Pig, Daffy Duck. Those, that was great animation, but a little bit different. Disney, Disney really focused on kind of a believability and kind of sincerity so that, uh, because they were doing these feature films that were like 90 minutes long, and I think the feeling was um, it was very important to create characters that you could latch onto and believe. You sort of, if you watch a Disney film, uh, you kind of forget its animation fairly quickly and you just get caught up in the characters and the story, hopefully, if the film works and it, it sweeps you along and sort of casts a spell on you. And that's what's really magical, I think, about it. And then when it's over, you kind of snap out of it. You make it sound like it was so easy, but the reality of it is that there were a lot of people that wanted to be in your shoes or that even were in similar positions that you know, didn't have the success that you had. So clearly there was some something more than just being in the right place at the right time. I could draw, um, which was important. You sort of had to be able to draw. But I was not a great draftsman, I think, compared to some of the people. Although Frank was not the greatest Disney draftsman. There were people like Milt Call, who did like Shere Khan and, and, um, and Merlin, uh, so many, who was a really great draftsman and Mark Davis who did Cruella de Vil and Maleficent and some of those characters was also one of the top draftsmen but I also I think Frank was a great actor that's what that's what he was uh, known as I think Chuck Jones called Frank the Lawrence Olivier of animators and and I was kind of oriented to acting as well I mean so so the acting part of it really appealed to me I was very shy I'm not as shy as I was then 
but I was very, very shy then. But And a lot of animators are introverted, but also secretly kind of want to get up and perform. So animation is kind of a way that you can do that uh, without actually having to do that. I mean, the characters that you you animate and hopefully, and if they are acting and performing and the audience is kind of into it, so you can sit back and, and watch it without being on the stage. Um, and yeah, there were some people that didn't make it through the program. There, there were people all, all along who didn't make it through the program. And I probably could have, I mean, I, after that I became, I animated after The Rescuers and I, was, I did quite a bit of animation in Pete's Dragon, which was a combination film, a musical, sort of like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks with an animated dragon interacting with Mickey Rooney and Shelley Winters, and that, and that was fun. And then I, I actually became a supervising animator on The Fox and the Hound. Um, at first, that, they gave me my own character, which was, which was Big Mama, <laughs> which was an owl, a sort of motherly owl. And I animated quite a big bit of Big Mama, although then I asked to actually move on to another character because somehow to me Big Mama felt a little like she was outside of the movie. Nothing really happened to her. She was just kind of watching and commenting on stuff. So then I animated more on the fox and the hound and I did a scene of the widow who when she has to, um, turns out this little fox that she's raised from a pup, she has to uh, to take to the game preserve and leave him because very sad scene, which actually was the last scene that I ever animated um, because as I, at that point then, and I had, I was also, I also liked to write. I had, I, I wrote a novel when I was 11 and sent it to publishers and, and, uh, and I liked story. And I, I actually had decided that I wanted to make a transition and move into story and storyboarding, uh, particularly because I was excited about a film that was, uh, in development that called The Black Cauldron, which um, I had read the books. There are five books by Lloyd Alexander. It's kind of a Lord of the Rings for a kind of more youthful set. And I loved the books and loved the characters. And I wanted to work on The Black Cauldron and get on early. I couldn't do it until The Fox and the Hound was close to being finished. But then I did move into story on The Black Cauldron. Uh, also, John was a director on The Black Cauldron at the same time. But he was kind of imposed on the movie. That This was now kind of, and actually, as it turned out, sometimes you can be careful what you wish for because I did not have a good experience on The Black Cauldron. I was young, and the directors of that movie were, were they were new directors, but they were also older, middle-aged men who had been doing other jobs and had been promoted into that position, I think, because Ron Miller, who was our boss, who was Disney's son-in-law, was a little nervous about giving this responsibility to these this group of young people. But anyway, we clashed, and, and I, I had very strong ideas of how I thought it should be done, and they didn't like it. And they didn't like John either because he was kind of put on them against their will because... Ron wanted to get at least one young person in the mix, and so they wouldn't invite him to meetings, and they did things. We were both only on the film for about a year, but the good thing that came out of The Black Cauldron is that uh, we kind of bonded to the two of us because we had shared vision of what the movie should be, um, and our vision was not shared by, by the directors of the movie. But um, we sort of clicked with that, and, and within that time, 
I mentioned I was a Sherlock Holmes fan and I had done the Sherlock Holmes film and I actually pitched because I'd seen these books um, about Basil of Baker Street, uh, which was about a mouse Sherlock Holmes who lived underneath Sherlock Holmes flat in 222 Baker Street. And Ron Miller actually liked the idea. So uh, so John and I were, were put on uh, Basil of Baker Street, which later became The Great Mouse Detective. That was a title we never liked. And then, uh, and with Bernie Manson, who was one of the veter- another one of the veterans who had trained under Eric, but but we got along well with Bernie. And Dave Mitchell was also on that film as a director, and and I became a director on that film and did a lot of storyboarding on that film, and uh, and then everything changed at Disney at that time, uh, was about, which was about the mid '80s, because um, at a certain point, Ron Miller who's actually the producer of our movie, we never saw him again. There was, a, there was a corporate raider named Saul Steinberg who was trying to buy Disney. And once again, how things could have been, if he had succeeded at that time, the plan I, we heard was that he was going to break up all the assets, sell the parks, sell the film library. And, and in effect, he would have destroyed the studio, but he would have made a lot of money in the process. That was going on all the time in the 80s. But that didn't happen. Although then Ron Miller was gone, and then Roy Disney Jr., who was uh, Walt Disney's nephew, who had left, who had been at the company and left the company, came back, and there were these white knights called the Bass Brothers who saved us. And then Roy brought in Michael Eisner from Paramount Pictures, who was the head of Paramount Pictures, and Michael Eisner brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was kind of his key sort of um, guy that he was working with, and then uh, the Black Cauldron which took a long time to make, did come out. But, but during that time, we had to repitch uh, Basil Baker Street to Michael and Jeffrey, even though we'd been, at that point we'd been working on it for about two years. But we had to pitch it almost as if it were a new idea. And fortunately, they actually liked it, and they greenlit it. And we didn't know this for years, but Bernie Mattinson told us that that evening after they greenlit the film, Roy Disney called Bernie and, and congratulated him that they, they were going to make it. And he says, it's a good thing because if, um, if they hadn't greenlit it, they were going to shut down the department. Uh, <laughs> so once again, we, we, we were close. And, uh, and then during that time, after that, they had a meeting, which Michael and Jeffrey had a meeting, which they called the Gong Show. It was a brainstorming meeting. It was something that Michael had a, a brainstorming technique that he had used at Paramount Pictures, which is uh, you get a bunch of people, and he got a bunch of us directors and key story people together in a room, and he said, I want everyone in the room to, to go out and find five new ideas for animated films, and we're going to meet again in two weeks, and I want you to pitch your five ideas. And I took that very seriously, and I went out that night right after that meeting. I went looking for ideas, and I went into a bookstore, and I picked up a book of fairy tales, and I started paging through the book, and I came across The Little Mermaid, the, the story by Hans Christian Andersen, which of course I had heard of, but I didn't really know the story. And I started reading it in the bookstore, and I was, as I was reading it, 
I was getting excited because Anderson writes very, very visually, almost cinematically. Uh, so as I was reading, all these images are popping up. And this and this underwater fantasy world, this could be really cool. I wonder why they've never done this. And I've said, told this before, but as, as I read the story further and further, I kind of got the idea possibly why they might not have done it because it's kind of a sad story to begin with. And, and then it gets sadder and sadder still. And then it gets even sadder. And then she dies in the end, which is kind of depressing but I still liked it I still liked it and so I wondered if there was a way to kind of turn it around and maybe give it a happy ending um, and I had a few ideas of ma making the witch in the story an actual villainess because she's not a villainess in the Anderson story and then making uh, the mermaid's father the sea king who is not in the story much at all to actually have it that he really doesn't like humans, he hates humans, and he doesn't want her to have anything to do with humans. Uh, but she's fascinated by humans, so there's a lot of conflict there. And I had a few other ideas, and I wrote up a two-page two treatment for The Little Mermaid. And I also found four other ideas as well and, and wrote up two-page treatments on them. And then when we got together two weeks later, Jeffrey said in the meeting, okay, now we're going to go around the table and I want everyone just to pitch their best idea. So when they got to me, uh, I thought my best idea was The Little Mermaid. So I, I said, The Little Mermaid. And I got gonged immediately, which meant no dice. And they said they, they, they were working on a sequel to Splash. Splash had come out two or three years before that, I think. And this just seemed too close. And I was really disappointed. But actually, and I remember I, I, that evening, I was with my wife, my girlfriend then, Tammy, who is now my wife. And I, I remember telling her, I think they made a mistake. I think there's really something in this. Uh, I, was, I, I was sad about it. Two days later, I got a call from Jeffrey Katzenberg. And he said that he and Michael had read all the treatments that I wrote. And he sort of had opinions about each one. This could be there. This could, maybe could be TV or whatever. But The Little Mermaid actually said, we both like The Little Mermaid and we want to put it in development. So I got ungonged two days later. And um, there you go. <laughs> and I was excited. We were. I was directing um, the Great Mouse Detective at that point, and uh, and yet I still had time to do a little development of the Little Mermaid at the same time. The studio then, um, and John was directing on the Great Mouse Detective, and we had become pretty close friends, and we'd done a lot of writing as well on on Great Mouse. And the studio now. I mean, this may sound weird, but before that. Uh, the movies, even going back to the ones I was involved with, like The Rescuers and Fox and a Hound, they did not write scripts for those movies. They had outlines and treatments, and then you actually, when you boarded the sequence, you would write your own dialogue, and then, and it sounds crazy, but that's kind of how it had worked. So, but now Michael and Jeffrey, that they were in a world where you had screenplays, and nothing went into production without. or greenlit with, without a a script. So I asked John Musker if he would be interested, because I knew he was a good writer, and he, he's a great writer, and I like to write. And I asked him if he would be interested in teaming up and writing a script for The Little Mermaid. And yeah, he that sounded good. And, and I pitched the idea to our boss, Peter Schneider, who went along with it. I showed him a script that I had written for um, the Disney Channel, a, a script that, a live action script, actually, for the early days of the Disney Channel that they made on a very low budget. And um, yeah, okay. And just as we were, just right after we had finished a 12-page treatment, 
uh, Peter told us that um, Howard Ashman, uh, the uh, the lyricist uh, uh, behind Little Shop of Horrors, and a director and writer as well, was going to um, come on to the movie and write the songs for The Little Mermaid. It was not our, our choice, but we both were really excited because we had both seen Little Shop of Horrors at the Westwood Playhouse um, in L.A. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then Peter said, because we... Um, uh, he said he has a lot of great ideas, and, and he wants to make your crab Rastafarian. We had a crab in our 12-page treatment, and the crab, actually the original crab, his name was Clarence. He was, a, he was a conductor. He was a very pompous kind of conductor, but he was British. And so we were a little taken aback, and uh, what does this mean? And, and is, it, is he going to be, does it, is he going to have dreadlocks and, and smoke weed or ganja or whatever? We didn't know exactly what Howard meant. But um, we talked to Howard on the phone, and he said really what he wanted him to be Jamaican because he wanted to bring Caribbean pop Caribbean influences into the music, and and so does it have to be um, Copenhagen? And, and and we said no, that sounded great. And and then we flew to New York. We met with Howard for two days at the Helmsley Palace in New York City. We spent two days with our twelve-page treatment working out all the songs that were going to be in the movie, and Howard. I mean, had put a lot of thought into it. So pretty much, and this has never happened since, but pretty much we came out of those two days with all the songs that, that were in the movie. And then Howard was directing a musical with Marvin Hamlish in New York at that time called Smile, a beauty, about beauty pageant contestants. And one of those contestants happened to be Jody Benson, who later became Ariel. And so he went on to direct Smile. John and I went on to write the script for The Little Mermaid with the song. We didn't have the songs yet, but we sort of described the songs as how they would work. And Jeffrey actually really liked that script a lot. And uh, we re-met with Howard about maybe five months later, uh, around Christmas time. We'd first met with him in May. I don't know if my math is right there, but we met with him again in December and he was working with Marvin Hamlish, and he did not get along well on Smile, so, so he brought Alan Menken on to work with him on Mermaid, which we were happy about. And we heard Part of Your World, the first song they ever wrote. We heard that in Howard's flat in Soho at that point. Uh, and that was a very, very special evening. Um, and uh, things just kind of fell into place with Mermaid. There again, uh, some of the other films have been more of a struggle, but um, we were actually working in a in a warehouse in Glendale that was um, not the nicest environment. Howard was a little horrified, but we we had for years, there, there was a beautiful animation building on the lot in, in Burbank where, where animation had been. But Jeffrey and Michael actually, they moved us to this, this warehouse in Glendale that, um, because he wanted to rejuvenate live action films and he felt like they needed the live action people much closer than the animation people. And, and their world at that point was live action. That's what they knew. Animation was something new for them. Um, so it was scary. We were in this warehouse. Um, and then later, the story of Mermaid, we actually moved across the street into a bunch of trailers across the street. But then Howard and, and Alan actually relocated. They, they, they left New York and came to L.A. for a few months and, and wrote all the rest of the songs right in our building. We could hear them writing. You could hear the music going on while we were, while we were storyboarding and visual development. Um, so we were in this really crummy building with a lot of young, hungry, hungry young people. I was about 
uh, in my early 30s, and John and I are the same age, and we're both from the Midwest, and we were two of the oldest people on the staff. This was really a film, this was really the first film that was kind of a new generation. Kind of, at that point, the baby boom generation had sort of finally come into their own at Disney, and um, and it was, it, I mean, not that it w went smoothly, they, these things never go smoothly, but compared to to a lot of films, um, there was something very special, and, um, and you never know how it's going to be. And it, it, these films take three to four years. I think Mermaid was about four years from from the time I pitched it to the time it, it came out in theaters. And uh, but we knew at a certain point when, when we had our first preview, when we previewed the Little Mermaid unfinished, a lot of it's still black and white pencil drawings, but there was some color. The goal is to have about 50% color. We screened it at the AMC in Burbank. This is where you preview to a real audience. They don't know what they're going to see, and they have cards to fill out uh, describing kind of what they liked and didn't like. And there's also kind of a rating that comes out of that. And, uh, and when we previewed the movie, that was the highest rating that any Disney movie of any kind had ever had. So um, that was kind of a sigh of relief. And it was, that was really a very special experience. And working with Howard and Alan and, and John and I and, and the whole staff, um, yeah, pretty unforgettable. And um, you never know, even if it previews well, there are a lot of movies that preview really well that actually don't do well. But it did very well. It was very successful. It was, it was the most successful animated film at that time. And sort of began, I guess, what people call now the Disney uh, Renaissance. Mm -hmm. After the golden age of, of mm -hmm. the 40s and 50s, this was sort of the Renaissance and led to uh, Beauty and the Beast, which we were not involved with. and But we were certainly very involved with Aladdin and working with Robin Williams. And then Lion King, which... Uh, uh, sort of topped everything and became a phenomenon, and and uh, and did so. Disney, in effect, went from kind of from a pretty at the point of Great Mouse from almost extinguishing <laughs> to um, now suddenly Disney's on top of the world. Treasure Planet was something that keeps coming up in the background as you're working on all these projects, and that was something that you latched onto very early. What was it about that story that kept you coming back to it? The first gong show, when I pitched The Little Mermaid and they gonged it, then they said, what's your second best idea? And I thought my second best idea was, I called it then Treasure Island in Space. And that got gonged also. And the reason they gonged it at that point is a little confusing. They had just come from Paramount Studios, which did the Star Trek movies. Mm -hmm. And they said the plot of the most recent Star Trek movie, which had wouldn't come out for a while, was Treasure Island in Space. And the next Star Trek movie that came out was actually the one where they went back back in time to save the whales. So I don't that didn't seem to have much to do with with Treasure Island. For me, um, the idea goes back to when I was a kid um, because along with being a Sherlock Holmes fan and a Disney fan, I was a science fiction fan. And in my mind, I thought it would be cool to somehow take Disney and science fiction and put them together. And what would that be like if you had a Disney-esque sort of film with robots and spaceships and stuff like that? Actually, when Star Wars came out, which I loved, I went nuts about, I kind of thought, well, this, this is sort of kind of what I was thinking about. And, and even George Lucas at the time said he was kind of trying to make a Disney film. So I kind of, well put it on the back burner. But when they wanted these new ideas, I thought I'd put it in. And uh, even though they gonged it a few years later, after we'd finished Mermaid, and while we were just beginning Aladdin, 
uh, one of the development executives at that time said, um, yeah, we're looking for new ideas again. We're looking for new ideas, and we're looking for, for pirate ideas. We're looking for ideas with pirates, and we're looking for science fiction ideas. And I said, well, it just so happened. So I, I sent them my two-page treatment, and, and it went over, seemed to go over well. And they said, yeah, we want to make this, and, and this will be your next film after Aladdin. And we even did a little visual development in those early days of Aladdin because we had time. And we thought all the while we were making Aladdin um, that uh, that would be our next movie. And even we got in trouble on Aladdin with our story. It didn't go as smoothly as Mermaid. We had a point where uh, there was a point in our story where Aladdin had a mother. And there were and even maybe his relationship with his mother was almost more important than the love story and various things. And Jeffrey, when he saw them, when he saw our first screen, didn't like it, wanted us to start over. And we needed help. And we got these two writers, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who would go on to write all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, or most of them. And they also, I think, uh, were writers on Shrek and Zorro, the live-action Zorro. Really good guys, and they helped us a lot on Aladdin. And they were really, really excited about Treasure Planet and um, wanted to be involved with it. And it's like, they're pirate guys, of course. But something happened um, with Jeffrey, and I don't quite know, but after Aladdin came out, and it was very successful, and then uh, and Ted and Terry were so excited, they, they actually wrote a script for, for Treasure Planet while John and I took a long vacation after Aladdin. And we read their script. We liked their script, but it wasn't exactly kind of some things. Um, but anyway, Jeffrey said, I don't want to do Treasure Planet. He just sort of nixed it. And uh, we didn't actually show him the script. Maybe we should have, but we wrote a treatment that kind of took a lot of their ideas, but put it in some of our ideas. He didn't like that treatment. He said, you can send it to Michael. And Michael actually seemed like he liked it. And then Jeffrey said, he's handling you. He's handling you. Um, And we really wanted to do it. So it was sort of back and forth. And finally, at a certain point, Jeffrey said, okay, okay, you can do Treasure Planet, but not as your next movie. You got to do something else uh, before that. And we were okay with that. Okay, it's a compromise. And then we looked at other projects in development, and one of them was Hercules, who uh, had been pitched by one of the animators, Joe Hadar. We thought Hercules could be fun. Both John and I, we love fantasy, and and this is epic fantasy, although we didn't want to, we kind of wanted to do a lighter tone uh, rather than uh, a very serious tone with that movie. And Jeffrey liked it. Hercules, yeah, great. So uh, he approved the project. I think we wrote a script, and also that got approved, and then Jeffrey left the company. <laughs> he got into, um, I won't go into it, but he and Michael Eisner, who had been very, very close, Frank Wells, who was also one of the executives, key executives who came to the company, um, was instrumental in the turnaround, though we didn't work with him personally, um, died in helicopter crash. And I think Jeffrey expected, I think Michael, he said that Michael had promised him Frank Wells' job if, if anything ever happened or if he ever left. And then Michael sort of reneged on that promise in Jeffrey's mind. So Jeffrey left and formed a, his own animation company, DreamWorks, with, with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. And then he started trying to court everybody at Disney to come to his company. And Michael um, fought back trying to keep everybody he could which at the time, for short term, everybody's salaries went up dramatically. And Michael even, he had lunch with us, and he said, um, look, I really like Treasure Planet. 
Jeffrey didn't like it. I love it. And I want to do, I want you guys to do it after Hercules and want to renegotiate contract up your salaries and everything. Um, so yeah, we, we knew that Michael wasn't necessarily that big a fan of Treasure Planet, but he, he was using it as a carrot, but we were okay with that. Um, um, so, um, so Treasure Planet was our next movie after Hercules. I would say more of a science fiction fantasy. It's not, it's not straight science fiction. A little bit like Star Wars, it sort of takes place in a fantasy universe yeah. where you can breathe in outer space and there are wooden spaceships and, and it's sort of a mixture of the past and the future, which we liked. Uh, it's sort of, I guess you'd call it steampunk now, but this, this was before steampunk. But a lot happened there again uh, with Disney. Sometimes Disney described like a roller coaster. It has its ups, it has its downs, it has its ups and has its downs. As it's downs, and after Lion King, the films were still doing okay, but not they, nothing could really match the success of Lion King. At the same time, because of this competition between Jeffrey and Michael, um, the cost of these movies went sort of skyrocketed. Um, that happens if you pay everybody a lot more money; the, the cost has to go up. Yeah. And then on top of that, then um, um, Disney had invested in, in Pixar studios with, with John Lasseter and Ed Catmull. Steve Jobs was very involved with Pixar. And, uh, and John Lasseter directed uh, their, the first digital film of, uh, for Pixar, which was Toy Story, uh, which at the time was a lot cheaper movie than uh, than the movies we were making because this was a brand new sort of industry and their salaries were not at our and and Toy Story of course was hugely successful and then Jeffrey made Shrek at DreamWorks which was hugely successful and suddenly there was sort of writing on the wall that um these digital movies are really doing well our hand-drawn movies are not doing so well uh, Treasure Planet was actually a hybrid movie. It actually had a lot of digital components to it. It had three-dimensional sets, and it, it looked like it was painted in oil, but it was actually um, digital oil that was applied to these three-dimensional sets. But the characters were animated except for the the main uh, pirate, John Silver, who was a, a cyborg, and he was a composite. He was part hand-drawn, but he had a, a digital arm and part of his face and his leg. Uh, and there was a robot, Ben, that Martin Short did the voice of, who who was all digital. So it was a hybrid movie. It was an, expens it was an expensive movie, but it didn't go over budget or anything like that. It just... But the writing was kind of on the wall even about a year before Treasure Planet came out, which was kind of disheartening. The studio had kind of were committed to try to turn the studio into a digital studio. And, um, and because costs had gone up so much, um, they were going to lay off a lot of our staff when, uh, when Treasure Planet finished. Also, they had a studio in Florida and Paris, and they were closing those studios. And then the people who were staying were getting a lot of salary cuts. So, it, so morale for that last year was not the highest. But people, people really put their hearts in it. They did great work. Um, and I won't get, probably go into it in a lot of detail, but Treasure Planet was not a success. It had a disappointing opening weekend quite a bit. But the studio, and I think Michael Eisner was somewhat behind this, um, did not really support the movie, and they did something that was a little unprecedented. The Monday after the weekend that Treasure Planet opened, um, they very publicly wrote off the movie 
for like $70 million. And suddenly that was the story. It was on CNN. It was in the newspaper. They had a huge story in the front page of the LA Times that basically made it sound like John and I had sort of extorted the studio to make this movie against their will, which honestly we did not. Michael <laughs> wanted us to make this movie. So, um, and we were kind of being made the scapegoats, I think. But also, um, a lot was going on. Michael was feuding with Roy Disney at that point, and um, and Roy Disney was not happy with what was going on at Disney, and um, and my and Roy was also kind of supporting Treasure Planet and the hand drawn part of it. And I think Michael, when he saw that the movie was was not going to be a hit, uh, decided to kind of use it against Roy. And all all, all kinds of other things went on at that time. Um, Disney actually owned the rights to the Pixar movies, uh, like Toy Story and Monsters Incorporated and, and, and Finding Nemo. But they were negotiating with Pixar, and the negotiations were going very bad, and it, and it looked very likely that Pixar would, would break away from Disney. But Disney owned these characters, and then Disney sort of created a studio specifically to make sequels to Pixar films, which was almost like taking their children and holding them hostage. And it, it was a dark time, I would say, um, in many ways. Uh, but, but ironically, um, at that time, um, Michael finally had Roy removed from the board of directors because he knew Roy was not on his side. And Roy's a very laid back, um, um, easygoing guy. And I think Michael kind of underestimated Roy because after that, then Roy went public and had a very public campaign against Michael. Um, I think Michael underestimated also the power of the Disney name because this was Roy Disney. Um, and, and ultimately then Michael left the company, not really, it was kind of against his will, but he left the company and Bob Iger, uh, was put in charge, um, and uh, we had left the company uh, for a little bit uh, when our contracts expired, and one of Bob Iger's first moves was to um, buy Pixar, which I don't think any anybody anticipated that. People thought they would renegotiate their contract together, but I don't think people knew he would buy the whole company, and then he put John Lasseter and Ed Catmull in charge of Disney Animation as well as Pixar Animation, and one of their first things was to hire us back. We were gone for about six months, and that led to um, another kind of, I would say, the roller coaster went up, and 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 we during that period we we did Princess and the Frog, which was moderately successful, but not successful enough to bring back Hand Drawn, which which kind of was the goal. But then Tangled was very successful. Wreck It Ralph was very successful. Uh, then there was um, Big Hero Six, mm. and then and then uh, Zootopia, and our movie Moana, our movie Moana, which um, which we started after Princess and the Frog, actually a little while after that, uh, the set in the South Pacific, and and then and and all those movies were successful. Oh, I'm forgetting the biggest one of all. How could I forget the biggest one of all? It was right in the middle of that, I think, between between uh, Wreck-It Ralph and between uh, Big Hero 6 was a little movie called Frozen. So, uh, so yeah, so there you go. Um, Disney, Disney was on top of the world again. With Treasure Planet, you kind of were at the mercy of powers that you had no control over. You ju were just got in the crossfire of this stuff. But you invested so much time and energy and passion into that project. How do you kind of like overcome the fact that your movie was basically written off 
and it's not it's not even for something that you did i mean it was tough that was that was certainly in terms of my professional career that was the darkest darkest point i mean like you say the all these movies take four to five years i think treasure planet took five years mm-hmm. i mean the irony is i probably got paid more for that john and i probably got paid more to make that movie than any of the other movies much more than, say, Little Mermaid or even Aladdin. I mean, and that's not unusual in Hollywood. It's, it's just kind of weird how things work. We we didn't get paid very much for Little Mermaid at all because it was, you know, it was our first our first try. Uh, but certainly, it was great for us. But but when and so many people there there are actually hundreds of people involved with the making of these films. Um, so it's certainly it's very gratifying with something like Mermaid or Aladdin when when suddenly. It, feels like almost everybody went to see the movie. Everybody saw the movie, and it's a huge success, and, and, and it sticks around. Um, they keep sticking around, and, and more things happen. And that's hugely gratifying. I, I describe it as a, as a gift that keeps on giving. Um, I would say Treasure Planet was more like a, a punch in the gut that keeps on punching because um, it even after it was written off, it, it continually, it seems like a few days would go by and I wouldn't see another article or another thing that was about, you know, just um, the whole, and, and people used it, I think a lot of people didn't like Disney at that point, part of because of everything that was going on and they're, and they're using Treasure Planet you know, as a kind of almost against Disney. So it's like they're trying, they're, and we're caught in that. And, um, and it, it was, it was suffering and you could almost give up, I think. I mean, it's possible we, we could have given up thing. Um, and, and then certainly with hand drawn, that in itself was, was just sad to see, um, a lot of people lose their jobs and then still not be able to quite, keep it going i mean digital films will be around forever but i like to see hand-drawn stick around too but at that point um and i don't there again i talked about i don't know what would have happened if i hadn't gotten that job at the tv station i don't know what would have happened if we hadn't pitched great mouse uh, at that point in time and and i don't know what would have happened if if um bob Iger hadn't bought pixar and brought john and ed back um to us personally but um at that that certainly helped us but um but i i would say that the only good thing that happened with treasure planet at that time was that it got nominated for an academy award as best animated film which totally surprised the studio because they didn't campaign for that at all and didn't really want that at that time because they had written off the movie and uh the response after after we got the Academy Award nomination because we were still hanging around in theaters. We thought maybe they would expand and into more theaters. Uh, they didn't. They took it out of all the theaters. <laughs> but since then, since then, I've heard more and more. Even at, 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 at going to schools and like the animation festival out here and, and the film school in Vancouver and all, for a long time now. Um, I mean, they're big, big fans of that film. It's kind of a cult film. But there are a lot of people that really, really like that film and appreciate all the work and the passion that, that went into it. So that's gratifying. And, and I, I've recovered somewhat. But, but, uh, but yeah, that was rough. That was very rough. The shift from hand-drawn to digital and Moana is... It's a CG film. has a little bit of hand-drawn with Maui's tattoo oh, wow. uh, who that was animated by Eric Goldberg, who did the genie in, in Aladdin. Yeah. So, so we had a little hand-drawn. So 
how how is that different for you and John as directors directing to like 2D and then shifting over to CG? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, some of it is not different. Storyboarding and even voice casting or writing songs and, and the, all that development and, and pre-production, that's all very similar. But when you get into the actual production process, the layout and animation and effects animation and backgrounds and the color and the lighting, it's very, very different. Um, and we had to take classes. We had to go to school just to learn the process. There's good and bad things about it. The tough thing is there are so many different stages that you see things in all kinds. There are just multiple, multiple stages. In a hand-drawn film, there's only a few stages. There's, there's um, the story sketch that goes to uh, layout and drawing of the character, then rough animation, then cleanup animation affects final color. That's it. Even from Snow White all the way to Princess and the Frog, it's the same. But in digital animation, you're constantly looking at components and having to approve things. We'd be looking at, at, at the screens and watching and, and we're saying that the sky is kind of, don't, don't worry about the sky. Don't worry about the sky. The sky's temporary. You know, the, the sky will be put in later. And oh, okay, okay. Well, well, you know, those trees, no, no, those aren't the real trees. Those aren't the real trees. Um, and then, okay, but what about the rock? So I don't have to worry. No, the rock is important. The rock is what you have to approve. Hard to get used to all that. Um, and then you'd see things further along and then earlier again and further along and back and forth. Um, and you have to kind, I would say with the digital process, you have to use your imagination more, I would say, and you have to trust people more. And they, they tell you, you know, this is going to work, this is going to work, this is going to work, and, and okay, okay, I will, I will trust you, I will believe you. But I would say both John and I, um, the cool part was when, you know, first with a digital film, you have to build all these assets, they call them assets. You, I mean, that's the trees, that's the rocks and the ocean, and the characters. The characters are assets. Each character is a digital model that, that, is, is, um, that is like the most incredible puppetry that you can imagine, but that's kind of what it is. And once those assets are built, then you've kind of got your assets. So it's very tough if you want to make a lot of changes at that point. But then once that's done, and then when we, you get into the animation and the tech animation, which is something I didn't even know what tech animation is, but in digital animation, tech animation is like the hair and the ropes and the clothes and the, anything that's not sort of a, the character acting is tech animation. Of course, we had we threw them a lot of curves too at the beginning of the movie. Our story, right, really based on our, our, our research trips to the South Pacific and the things we learned, um, we wanted the ocean the Pacific Ocean be an actual character in the movie. And then um, the Polynesian hair is tricky. They told us early on um, the most difficult things to do in digital animation are uh, water and hair. And, um, well, that's we have a lot of water and hair. Um, and then in terms of the idea of the ocean being a character in, in the movie, in terms of the process, that kind of throws everything out of whack. And actually, they didn't really know how to do it. Um, they said, we don't really know how to do it, but we'll figure out how to do it by the time we have to. And they did, and they did, and they were really good, really talented people in just every area. And a lot of technical people, 
a lot of artists, certainly many, many artists, but also a lot of technical people, much more than in a hand-drawn film, um, a lot of geniuses who, who, um, who know things that most people can't comprehend. Um, anyway, we, we sort of learned what we did, but the, the exciting part was, was toward the later part of the movie, even when we're in the crunch period, I would call it, which is when you're working 14-hour days and weekends, which is very tough, but really exciting because that's when we started to see it all come together. And then, and even the animation from where we approved it to where it goes through these different stages, it starts looking better and better. And then the tech animation adds so much. And even these sets, they don't quite have all the details and the lighting. And, and the final thing, when the lighting, it's real cinematic lighting, just like in a live action movie, there's temp lighting before that. And when you see that, and we were like blown away. Things looked just so good. Um, by the end of the movie, every time when we'd see the color dailies, uh, it looked so good, and that water looked so good. Yeah, the, it's it's amazing. The other thing that I just can't comprehend that there, in terms of the amount of time it takes to do, to do a digital film, it's probably just about the same amount of time as it takes to do, to do a hand drawn film, but it's a different process. A lot of time is spent building these assets. Um, a lot of time before you really get into production. Animation, you can almost start right away once you've got a background painted, an animator can animate it, or even the background drawn, I mean, an animator can animate, but you have to wait a lot. Um, and then, But then, and we had about 90 animators on, on the movie, which is more, much more than you would have on a hand-drawn film. A hand-drawn film maybe. I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 at, at most. Um, otherwise, it would just get out of hand. You could have a lot more animators on a digital film. And at the end of the time, um, when we were getting really close to our deadline, and, and there was a sequence left that hadn't been touched yet, and it's the, the scene in the movie with Tamatoa the crab, where he sings a song, uh, Shiny, and, and with Moana. At that point, that entire sequence which hadn't been touched yet in animation, had to be done in two weeks. And in my mind, I thought, that's impossible. That just cannot be done. From my experience in hand-drawn animation, that nothing like that could ever be done. Uh, somehow, and I still don't understand it, it was done, and it looks great. And it had to do with more people. I think more than half of the 90 animators went on to that sequence and going back and forth and work with each other. I mean, we still saw the animation. We saw it in dailies at different stages, but, but moving at super speed. Um, so that's amazing. That's the thing about computer animation um, is how fast you can go. Now, the problem, though, is if you need assets that you don't have, um, in, an a in a hand-drawn film, if, you, if suddenly we, we're going to add a brand new location, like we're going to, here, here's a church. It wasn't in the movie at all. Yeah. That, that doesn't take long to draw up a church. But if we needed, like, like say, um, a, a late in the game when we made story changes and we have a bunch of cockamores <laughs> that were not in the story, and now we've spent all our money on all our assets <laughs> and we have to build new ones, that that's tough that 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 was tough uh but people that they figured out they always figure it out um so there's good and bad but um but we always felt that moana should be a digital film i think because 
the lush location and you want that ocean to really feel like a real ocean and the skies to feel like real skies and and the the plants and the and the textures are so important but that doesn't mean that every story um is that way i think i think there are still stories that that um can work really well in hand-drawn. It just depends on kind of what you're dealing with. You and John have been working together for a very long time. So and I assume that over the course of your working career, the way that you guys work together maybe has changed. How do you work together? Okay, um, it has changed. It has evolved, although not so much from writing. As writers, we had developed a system that we use pretty much on all of our writing. Um, and it has to do with our different personalities. It's weird. We're both from the Midwest. We're both about the same age. When we were kids, we read the same comic books and had kind of the same cultural influences. But when we write, I, but we're different in our personalities and, and our tone. That So, I mean, we work out the stories together back and forth, outline, beat outlines and things. But when we write a script, uh, John always begins, and John likes to kind of what I would call like is improvise on paper. He writes very fast, longhand on on note paper, and and just anything that comes into his brain, like he'll write lines of dialogue, bits of business. He'll write parts of scenes or some of scenes, sometimes even complete scenes. I don't think he ever reads any of it again. He just writes and writes and writes until he's drained. He's written out everything. He feels like he can write, and then he turns all that over to me. So I get like a pile of material, and and then I go through and read everything, and I circle things I particularly like, and then I sit down at a word processor, and I, I start actually putting things together. I do a lot of editing, but I do my own writing, and I'll make changes. Sometimes he'll have stuff that I feel like it's all there, and sometimes he'll have stuff I feel like it's not there at all, <laughs> and then I, I will do it. But, um, but actually, he keeps doing that every scene just – more and more and I keep doing my thing and he never sees anything I do until I'm done so I give him a completely finished script to read and because he never rereads anything he has no idea in some sense what he's written and what I've written it's like he's reading a fresh script and then he goes through reads it makes his notes gives it back to me I make my notes and we keep going back and forth till we turn it in in terms and that stayed the same in terms of directing the way it started out in the old days um the way it worked at Disney was there was, on most films, there was Walt Disney, who was kind of the executive producer, but was very, very involved with the story. Then there was kind of a, a supervising director, and then there were sequence directors. Um, and and each, the, the movie would be divided up into sequences. And then the director had his own sequences, and he was in charge of those sequences. Almost every aspect, he would direct the voice talent and the animators and the layout people. And that's how John and I worked on Great Mouse Detective. We were both sequence directors on that film. Bernie Mattinson was the producer of the film, and Dave Mishner was another sequence director who did other parts of the film. A lot of, in that film, I did a lot of the, I was the last director on that film, and I directed a lot of sequences that I had storyboarded. Um, so, um, but when John and I on Little Mermaid, we started a kind of our own system that was similar in that we, also, which is always them, the, the, the script is divided up into sequences. And we actually would sort of finagle and who would do what. I mean, he would do some of the sequences, I would do some of the sequences. We'd, we'd sort of split them up. Uh, the thing we argued about most were the songs. And um, like for Little Mermaid, I got to do Under the Sea and Part of Your World, 
which was pretty cool. But John did the witches sequence uh, with uh, Poor Unfortunate Souls. He did Kiss the Girl and and like that. So um, and so then in the making of the movie, we in terms of the storyboards, we do that together. And even when we recorded the voice actors, we do that together. But after that, um, we'd work in editorial on our own sequences with the editor. We'd work with the animators and layout artists individually. We sort of had ownership of our individual sequences. And we'd show them to each other from time to time. But we always had, that was good because you always had a little more objectivity over the other one. Um, and, and, and there again, I think in terms of this part of it, the tendency outside of the songs is usually is for John to do more of the action sequences and more of the big comedic sequences. And I tend to do more of the sincere or emotional or kind of acting more oriented sequences. But it's not always that way. We will trade back and forth. I've done a few action sequences and he's done some emotional sequences, but that's how it worked. But as we got to Princess and the Frog, that process didn't quite work as well because it just shifts in how things work. We started looking at all the animation together in dailies um, and even in editorial, that, things started to change. And on Moana, because of that process, we really didn't split it up at all on Moana. We did sort of on Princess, we did on Princess and the Frog, but it didn't work quite the same way. But Moana, we just kind of did it together because uh, there was no point in dividing it up. You're retired now, <laughs> but as somebody who's creative, who's, you know, storytelling is in your blood, I can't imagine you've stopped telling stories or being creative. How do you channel that now? Yes, I am retired. I retired just a couple months before the pandemic hit, but I'm not completely retired, I would have to say. And John and I actually, we still collaborate a bit and there's some things there's some things that we're kind of doing. We're doing some things. And, and I've done some things on my own, too. I mean, and I've done some painting, um, which I had not done for years and years. And, and I've done some writing. And, um, and like I say, we're, I would say, semi-retired, not 100% not retired. But I've actually enjoyed retirement, uh, or I've enjoyed semi-retirement. So how do you stay creative? I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I, like I've been doing this, but I read a lot. I like to read. I've always liked to read. And I still, um, then during the pandemic, it's funny, like it wasn't so bad for me because uh, I'm an introvert by nature and I don't have a problem being in a room by myself and just kind of doing stuff. My wife, it was terrible for her. She was, she was just um, um, very, very, it was very, very tough. And for a while we were, our granddaughter, we were not able to see her and things like that. And, and just being, particularly that time when you're just, you're in the house and, and having deliveries and that's it, that you're not seeing anybody, um, that was really tough for her, but it was okay. I started meditating um, and like I learned how to play the piano. I, I took it from an app. I've been learning the piano and, and doing some writing and um, doing some painting. And, and like I say, it, it, I, and I could do all this uh, for the first time without feeling really guilty about it because I didn't have a choice about it. So, so um, it wasn't too bad. We did get a puppy. We have, we have, um, my wife's been into Basset Rescue for, for years. years. my wife, Tammy, and, and we've had Basset Hounds for, for years and years, um, usually three to four Basset Hounds. Oh. Uh, and for a little while, we had a rescue ranch where we were actually, well, we don't have that anymore, but it's still going. It's called Daphne Land. But anyway, so, um, but we got a new puppy 
during the pandemic named Fred who, who joined the group. And so that helped. So you're keeping very busy. Is there anything that you can share about any of the projects you're working on? I don't know if anything will come of anything, uh, but really not. I mean, there's a, I guess there's a little, we have a little, I mean, that has been talked about a little bit. There's a project at Warner Brothers animation that we've kind of been connected with and something could happen with that but there's a lot of changes going on at Warner Brothers right now they've been my whole management has completely shifted so who knows and there's a couple other things but I you never know but it's fun when you're reading are you actively looking for a possible new idea or do you read just for the enjoyment of it I, I read just for the enjoyment. I mean, I'm, uh, John and I are very lucky in that almost all, for the bulk of our career, maybe up through Treasure Planet, um, all the movies that we uh, kind of planned or wrote a script for, wanted to do, they were all made. I mean, in, in Hollywood, that's fairly unusual mm-hmm. to make all the projects. But I would say after Treasure Planet, um, there are a few ideas that we've explored that never got made for one reason or another. And a few of those uh, I still like. I think, you know, there could be something to that. So there's there's a few things kind of hanging around that, that um, I think about now and then or do a little work on now and then, stuff like that. What advice would you give to somebody that's interested in going into animation today? The world was so different when I started, and and it, now it changes sort of all the time, and, and there's so many more jobs, more different kinds of jobs than there used to be. But I do think, in my own personal case, that it was an advantage that I had this specific goal and, and worked toward that goal, uh, even though I didn't, even though I didn't stay an animator and I moved into other things, I had this goal to become an animator. Um, so I would recommend people trying to get a sense of what they like to do. The, if they want to be in animation, what part of animation, what they feel like they would like to do the most and what they feel they might be best at doing, if they can, so that you can sort of aim more specifically in a certain direction rather than, I want to be in animation, but I maybe do this or I can do this or this or this or this. Um, I do think there are more opportunities right now. I think there are more opportunities than there were when when uh, when I started. Uh, and now with everything that's going on with the movies and the streaming and and um, and even video games and live action movies now, um, certainly the big special effects movies use a ton of animation, but even the ones that don't even seem like they're using animation are using a lot of animation. So there's there's a lot of opportunities. Um, uh, I think it's a fun career. I, I think um, I, I I feel like there again, if you're creative and you want to be creative, and there's just a lot of oppor- creative opportunity in, in in the world of animation. So I would um, uh, I think it's it's definitely a worthwhile pursuit. Um, so I guess that that would be that would be my advice. But try to aim at a target. And I guess self-motivation is kind of pretty important, too. I mean, you got to where you are because you really, you knew what you wanted to do, but you worked really hard to do it. And you found interesting ways to, to make it happen. And I would say, in my case, that 
when I saw something that looked like an opportunity, I grabbed it. Um, um, I took it seriously and I grabbed it because opportunities don't always come around and you just kind of need to keep your eye open. But if you're like, here's something where I can do something here and it could affect things or change things. So I would say, if you see those opportunities, go for it. Um, it may, they may not come around again. And that was our conversation with Disney legend Ron Clements. You can find all of Ron's films now streaming on Disney+. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.